Welcome to the Race Through Space Read Along Podcast, written and hosted by David Hall. Welcome to the Race Through Space Read Along Podcast. My name is David Hawk, and I am the author of The Race Through Space, which is available now on Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, and Audible. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. Again, thank you all so much for the wonderful responses, and even for those of you who have given me some wonderful feedback. Like I've said before, we are definitely a work in progress. Last week, I talked about what the publishing process has been like for me. If you haven't listened to that episode, I don't know what you're doing listening to this one. It'll be all out of order, especially since the chapters are all in order. So go back and listen to the previous episodes, then come on back. For everyone else, welcome back to the Race Through Space Read Along podcast. The original Race Through Space novella was published just under two years ago by books to go now It has been an absolute dream come true. I never thought I would see the day where my words were printed in book form. And I'll tell you, one of the most fun things to this date has been when I opened my first box of books. Not only did I flip through it and it was super cool to see all the words inside of a printed book, but also the chance to smell a book. And I don't know if you are anything like me, but I love the smell of a book. But now that I think about it, I really think the most fun part so far has been when I listened to the original recording of the Race to Space audiobook. Now that was super cool. The last two years have been wonderful. I have been inspired to write and learn and grow. My writing now is infinitely better than the first novella. The wonderful thing is that this podcast has given me the opportunity to go back through that first book and fix my mistakes and see where I can add extra scenes. So I think that after I'm done with this series of podcasts, I may just go back and do that. In the meantime, I'll continue to push myself and my writing. I just wrapped up the second book in the Event Horizon trilogy. It's a completely different story than the original one, but it also feels very familiar. In Event Horizon 2, the book is actually from Marie's point of view. Oddly enough, I never had a vision for the series beyond the first three stories. I had planned for it to be just a three-part series, and that was it. I would move on to bigger and better things afterwards. But I fell in love with my characters and the world I've created. On top of that, the response from my readers has been wonderful, especially from the kids who are reading my books. Since my book was published late in 2018, I have written the two additional Race to Space novellas, the full-length Event Horizon book, I added the novellas together to form the trilogy, and I've written the second Event Horizon book. But that's not all. Outside the Race to Space series, I've written a doomsday novel for adults called Caldera. It's a fictional story using real science about the supervolcano that lurks underneath Yellowstone National Park. And I'm currently trying to use that as a means to find a literary agent so we can send this awesome book to a larger publishing house. That brings me to my comments early in this podcast series. Being a writer means facing almost constant rejection. I've sent off Caldera to at least a dozen agents, and I've been rejected every single time. But this book is so good that it will be worth all of the rejection when it's finally published at a larger house. Luckily, I have books to go now if I can't find any takers. In addition to Caldera, I was asked to write a holiday story for a short story anthology that Books to Go Now publishes every Christmas. I struggled to come up with an idea for the story, but then I had a very twisted idea come to mind. I pitched the story to my editor, and she told me to go for it. I'm so fortunate to have an open-minded publisher that allows me to write such a sordid tale. What came out was possibly one of my top two or three favorite stories that I've written, and it's called The Christmas Roast, a very, very adult holiday horror story. I have at least six different books in my mind right now. 
My next book, after I'm done editing Event Horizon 2 and after I'm done writing a COVID-19 related horror story called Quarantine, is a pure horror novel called Sundown. Sundown is another one of those stories that begin its life as a screenplay. Once I've completed Sundown, I will finish up the entire Race to Space series. After that, I will write my first romance novel. And then after that, I have a young adult fantasy novel. At the same time I'm doing all that, I have recently started an entertainment production company called Truckee Pacific Productions with one of my best friends, and he and I host several podcasts on the station. This has all been possible because one day I decided to listen to a Kevin Smith podcast. So that has been my journey from idea to podcast. Over the next few episodes, I'll start talking more about my past. I have an entire episode devoted to black holes, and I talk about some of my influences on my writing. Today, we'll be finishing up the Race to Space 2, The Wave of Time, from the Race to Space trilogy, starting with Chapter 9, on page 113. Chapter 9 Ten days ago, Stephen and Dr. Lowell hid behind a large boulder. There were blue and white lasers firing back and forth, causing the air to sizzle. Stephen tapped furiously at the screen of his wormhole device. A blue laser shot from the device in an icy world expanded within the singularity. A buzzing sound filled the sky above him. Stephen looked up and saw a ball of electricity flying directly at them. Crap, he said. Just as the electric shell landed, a large gray and rocky creature jumped and pushed him out of the way. Stephen went tumbling onto the rocky ground. When he came to a stop, his wormhole was pointed to a brown mountainside. Inside the singularity was the view of a dim, empty planet. Fifteen seconds until wormhole collapsed. Ralph said. Stephen looked up and saw the rocky creature lying on top of his friend. He ran to the two figures. The gray creature was dead, and Dr. Lowell was unconscious. He grabbed his friend under his arms and dragged him through the singularity. They fell through just as the wormhole collapsed. In an instant, he found himself on the dim planet with Dr. Lowell gasping for breath on the ground. Their breaths billowed from their mouths in the cold. He dropped his pack to the ground, pulled out his cold weather gear, and put it on. With a mighty effort, he stuffed the unconscious friend into his yellow sleeping bag. Then he took out his hiking poles and linked them to Dr. Lowell's poles. Finally, he stretched his friend's red sleeping bag across the linked poles, and now he had an improvised stretcher. Stephen laid the stretcher next to his friend and gingerly rolled him onto it. Dr. Lowell's leg came down hard on the ground, and he moaned in pain. Stephen stood up and circled around, taking stock of his situation. There was nothing but dirt and rock trailing off in every direction. He saw a large black object in the distance. He tapped on the screen of his wormhole device. It was cracked and pieces of his screen were missing. I am receiving no signal from the wormhole device, Ralph said in Stephen's ear. He took the wormhole device off of his arm put it into his pack, and pulled out a large, smart watch. He slipped the watch onto his wrist, picked up the stretcher, and started walking toward the object. The ground on this unknown planet was hard and rocky. Steven strained to pull his friend across the terrain. Finally, after two back-breaking days of walking, he reached a dark object. On the outside, it looked like a massive slab of granite. It was a black structure that sat low on the ground. He carefully laid Dr. Lowell on the ground and stretched his back by bending over. He walked up to the black structure, took off his glove, and ran his fingers across its surface. It was warmer than the rest of the environment. He pulled his headlamp out of his pack and turned it on. He scanned the structure with his lamp, and it completely absorbed the light. 
He could just make out a black rectangle set back from the rest of the wall. It was a door. He put his hand on the door and pushed it open. It swung on squeaky hinges and it opened onto a dark abyss. He took a step inside the door. The only noise came from his heavy footfalls on a solid floor. He aimed his headlamp onto the floor and he saw that it was littered with what looked like paper and deteriorated pieces of furniture. He walked over to a pile of debris and picked up several sheets of the paper. He pulled off his gloves and pulled a book of matches from a side pocket on his pack. He struck a match to life and set a small flame to the papers in his left hand. The papers caught fire but very slowly and the flame was small. Steven dropped the papers onto the ground and stomped the flame out. He walked back outside of the structure, picked up Dr. Lowell and dragged him inside. Present Day That night, a fever took hold and you've been in and out of consciousness since then, Steven said. How long have we been here? Dr. Lowell asked. I believe this is day 10, Earth time. I can't believe I'm still alive. You and me both, Stephen said, clapping his friend on the shoulder. Now what? Dr. Lowell said. We rest today and monitor your progress. If you continue to feel better, we can explore this planet together. Two kilometers from here is a shell of an ancient city. Maybe we can find answers about why this planet is deserted and if they have any materials we can use to fix my wormhole device. For the rest of the day, Stephen and Dr. Lowell sat with their backs against a shelter, sharing stories of college and life. Dr. Lowell was still weak and he dozed off. Stephen spent the latter part of the afternoon collecting flowers and water to make tea and to prepare them a much needed meal. A cool breeze prickled the back of his neck, causing his skin to break into goosebumps. He trained his gaze to the setting sun in the west and he sighed. Stephen woke up his friend and they returned to their camp inside the shelter. Stephen made a pot of the floral tea and two MRE packages of Kung Pao beef. Dr. Lowell ate the MREs rapidly, having not had a solid meal in over a week. When he was done eating, he used his index finger to collect every drop of the sweet and spicy sauce from inside the aluminum package. He took a long pull of cooled flower tea and released a belch, long and deep, that reverberated through the dark confines of the shelter. The men lost themselves in conversation for hours. Hey, what'd you name it? He asked. Name what? asked Stephen. The flower. I actually haven't thought about it, Stephen admitted. How about Webb's flower? Dr. Lowell asked. I like the sound of that, Stephen said back. Webb's flower. Before long, both men were snoring loudly, and for the first time in weeks, Stephen went to sleep happy and bursting with optimism. He was the first to wake the next morning. When he opened his eyes, he noticed the entire camp was glittering like silver in the dying embers of his small fire. He propped himself up on one elbow, and he could see that every surface of the shelter was covered in a thin layer of frost. He exhaled, and a large cloud of white vapor rolled from his mouth. He threw his sleeping bag open, grabbing his pack and pulling out a small plastic bag. He tossed the bag into the embers, resurrecting the small fire. He ran his hand over the glittering, frost-covered ground, and it came away, cold and wet. He tapped his friend on his shoulder. At first, Dr. Lowell just pulled his sleeping bag over his head and refused to wake up. Stephen's persistent tapping finally roused his friend from his sleep. What's up? Dr. Lowell asked him sleepily. Come with me. We need to go outside, Stephen replied, and put on your cold weather gear. Two men climbed into their snow pants and thick parkas. They looked like they were preparing for an expedition to Mount Everest. Stephen lit his headlamp as he walked through the shelter's interior, illuminating Several metallic couches, chairs, papers, and pieces of equipment all covered in a thick coat of frost. 
Steven could see that his friend wasn't expecting to see such human-like objects strewn throughout an shelter. Soon, the two men reached the shelter entrance. Steven noticed that very little sunlight was spilling in through the open door. He and Dr. Lowell picked up their pace until they reached the entrance. Their entire world was covered in a foot of snow and ice. The storm blew in so rapidly that it flash froze the field of flowers, encasing them in ice. What do you think is going on? Dr. Lowell asked him. I don't know. It could just be a change of seasons, or, Stephen said trailing off and thought. Or what? Or maybe we're catching up to whatever was blocking the sun, Stephen said. Ralph, I want you to monitor the amount of light coming into this area. I will have the results of today's analysis in 3 hours and 15 minutes, Ralph announced. What do you want to do for the next 3 hours and 15 minutes? Dr. Lowell asked. Are you up for a walk? Stephen asked, his hands on his hips. You said there's an old city near here. If that's the case, I am most certainly up for a walk, Dr. Lowell said. Stephen pointed to his left, and the two men started out on an expanse of hard dirt, frozen flowers, and snow-covered hills. Dr. Lowell pulled a thermos from his pack. He unscrewed the lid, and steam billowed out as he took a drink of flower tea. Stephen inhaled the frigid air. The two men fist-bumped and started their hike. The trek was slow and exhausting. The two men had to stop constantly so they could catch their breaths. Tell me about your boy, Dr. Lowell said in between shallow breaths. He's pretty incredible, Stephen said proudly. He's smarter than both me and Vera put together, and he's funny. Stephen locked his hand behind his head so he could catch his breath. He analyzes you, that's for sure. The best thing about him is that he's a generally kind person. Can't wait to meet him, Dr. Lowell said, clapping Stephen's shoulder. The men walked for another hour before a shape materialized in the fog. The shape resembled the sharp teeth of a snarling monster, but soon the shape revealed itself to be the decimated remains of an extinct civilization. Buildings that once towered hundreds of feet in the air lay in ruins. Hills of debris littered the city. The two men crested a hill near the ruins. Have you been here before? Dr. Lowell asked Stephen as they stopped again to catch their breaths. Just once, he said. I was trying to find shelter for you and me. But I couldn't get your stretcher over these hills, so I kept walking until I found the shelter we're at now. You're a good dude, Steve, Dr. Lowell said. Really good. The two men walked up the front of the closest hill. They got their first good look of the city when they crested the top of the hill. The alien city ahead of them could easily have been a city built on Earth. The buildings were made of metal girders and a material that looked like concrete. The bases of the buildings were built much wider than those on Earth, and the city was gridded off, looking much like the streets of New York City. Where do we go? Dr. Lowell asked. We find something shiny, Stephen replied. Are you serious? Why shiny? Dr. Lowell asked. Back, figuring Stephen was only kidding. Shiny usually indicates power. Look at Earth. The most important buildings are usually the most extravagant ones. Shiny means power and wealth. Those will be the best places to get information about this planet. Stephen and Dr. Lowell started scanning the city for anything that reflected the sun. Just then, a booming sound filled the deserted city, and the ground rumbled below their feet. Stephen saw a cloud of dust billow out from a nearby section of the city. Soon, the sound evaporated, and the breeze blew out the haze. What do you think that was? asked Otto. Collapse, Stephen said. We need to be extremely careful of our surroundings, and we need to be absolutely silent. Our voices and our footsteps could bring down a building. Shiny, Dr. Roll said, smiling. The two men continued through the city as slowly and as silently as possible. They reached the shell of a squat concrete building that loomed over their heads, casting them in a frosty shadow. They climbed a pile of rubble that divided two collapsed buildings. 
Over walking nearly a kilometer into the city, and atop of their tenth hill, they finally found something shiny. In chapter 9, this chapter answers the question, what happened to Neil's dad and Dr. Lowell? And how did they end up on Flora in the first place? This chapter shows just how hard Neil's father had to work in order to keep Dr. Lowell alive. He was fueled by guilt about hurting his friend. We find out in chapter 9 that Dr. Lowell's hypothesis about the planet Flora was correct. The sun is going away and the planet is starting to cool down. Stephen and Dr. Lowell know their time is running out, so they need to explore the deserted city nearby to try and find supplies. The abandoned city that Stephen brings Dr. Lowell to looks a lot like any city on Earth, except the bases of the buildings are much wider than those on Earth. The reason is that Flora has more gravity, so stuff weighs more. For a building to stand tall, it would have to have a very wide base. They wind their way through the collapsed buildings and find one that they think could help them. Chapter 10 While Stephen and Dr. Lowell walked towards a collapsed silver spire, Neil arrived on Silosis, holding the furry Spalding in his arms. The bulbous creature looked up at Neil and let out a soft honking sound. Neil put the Spalding on the ground and it started honking at Neil excitedly. That's not good, Marie said, looking down at the Spalding. Grandpa Al reached down and stroked the creature softly. The three of them were distracted by the Spalding and they failed to see a blue, electrified orb hurtling through the sky. The light streaked over their heads and it landed a hundred feet behind them. A blue bubble of light emanated from where the orb hit. It collapsed instantaneously and exploded. The shockwave from the explosion blew past the three of them. Then, another orb streaked overhead and Neil could see hundreds of alien creatures standing in trenches, silhouetted by the exploding orb. The creatures held black weapons that were aimed in their direction. Then he heard a sharp whistling sound cut through the night sky, and when he looked up, he saw an orb rocketing right at them. Run! he yelled. The three of them ran off in different directions. Neil chose to run away from the creatures with the weapons, and he dove headfirst behind a rock just as another orb exploded. He covered his head and dirt and rock rained down on him. When the dust settled, he looked up and saw the Spalding standing in front of him. He poked his head above the rock, and he saw Marie taking shelter inside a crater. He started to stand up when he felt a heavy hand pushed him back down. He whipped his head around and saw a short, stocky creature with black and gray rock-like scales staring back at him. The rocky creature was no more than three feet tall, but had very thick legs and a barrel-shaped chest. Neil watched the rock creature aim his weapon to the crater where Marie was hiding. Behind them, another blue bull exploded and shrieks of pain filled the night air. He tried to break away from the creature when another orb exploded, but the creature grabbed him by the back of his shirt and he fell to the ground. He put his hands up in surrender when the Spalding jumped on his chest and started honking at the rocky creature. I surrender. Please don't hurt me. I need to help my friend, Neil said. I am Ort. I promised your father that I would protect you, but you need to move, Ort said urgently. The state has our position zeroed in. You need to see my friend, Neil said staunchly. Ort nodded his head in understanding. The rocky creature pulled a glowing red disc from his back and placed it on his left arm. When Ort rocked his arm, the red disc expanded, creating a glowing shield that crackled with electricity. We must be quick, Ort said sternly. Stay behind me. Neil and Ort took off in Marie's direction. Another whistling sound filled the air just as they reached the crater, where Marie was hunkered down. Ort stopped where he was, grabbed Neil by his chest, and threw him into the crater with Marie. Ort left on top of them. He rolled onto his back, and the shield expanded, covering the mouth of the crater as a blue orb exploded just feet away. Rocks and dirt rained down onto the shield. Ort contracted the shield, and the suspended dirt fell onto Neil and Marie. Neil grabbed Marie tightly in his arms. Are you okay? he asked. I'm okay. I don't think I've been so scared, she said. My life flashed before my eyes, but I'm not that old, so it didn't take very long. Have you seen my grandpa? No, he ran in a different direction. 
Marie looked over at Ort. Who's this? she asked. I am Ort of the Resistance. I am also a friend of Steven. I swore to protect him, but I have failed. So I must protect his kin, Ort said dryly. Um, well, cool. Thanks for saving me, Marie said. We must get you to the lines. I am certain your elder will be there, Ort said. Ort attached a shield to his back and he pulled a rifle from his chest. He thumbed a switch and it hummed a life. Ort lifted the rifle to his shoulder and he scanned the path to the resistance lines with his scope. Another orb came whistling by. Ort turned his rifle to the sound without hesitation. He pulled the trigger and a green plasma laser blasted from the end of the rifle, destroying the orb. Ort turned back to Neil. Our base is just past the line. The field is clear, Ort said. It is essential that you follow every direction I give you. Do you understand? Neil and Marie nodded their heads. The Spalding honked in agreement. Ort cocked his rifle. Go, Ort said. Neil and Marie ran across the battlefield as fast as they could, but they seemed to be running in slow motion. The gravity was so intense that Neil could barely raise his feet off the ground. He saw blue bolts of electricity flying through the air. Explosions echoed in the distance. There were indecipherable shouts and screams coming from ahead of him. Down, Ort yelled. Neil and Marie dropped next to each other and Ort jumped on top of them. The shield on Ort's back expanded and covered them in a red dome, just as an orb exploded ahead of him. Ort was up quickly, and he picked them both up by the backs of their shirts and dropped them on their feet, and they once again started running towards the lines. The two Earthlings collapsed just as they crossed the front of the resistance lines. Neil placed his hands behind his head, and he took gulping breaths. Marie laid on the ground out of breath. Neil looked back towards the battlefield where the wormhole deposited them. Ten feet ahead of them was the resistance trenches dug into the ground. Just behind the trenches were clay dome huts with holes cut into them. Neil looked to his right, and 20 feet down the line, a cloud of black smoke came from the trenches. He could see stout resistance fighters tending to their wounded. Lying on the ground were several stretchers filled with injured resistance fighters waiting to be taken to a field hospital. He saw a silver ponytail waving from below a stretcher being carried by two resistance fighters. Neil trudged off in the direction of the stretcher. The two soldiers disappeared out of sight before he could catch up to them. I will take you to the field hospital once I have spoken to the general, Ort said from behind Neil. Who is the general? Neil asked, not turning around. The general is the leader of the resistance, and she is also my wife, Ort said. Neil turned around and followed Ort as he made his way back to Marie, who was petting the Spalding in her lap. What's his name? Marie asked Neil. You name him, Neil said back. I'll call him Sagan, Marie said. I dig it, Neil said. Sagan. The Spalding jumped out of Marie's lap, scuttled towards Neil, and jumped in his arms. Follow this way, Ort said. Ort started moving towards a row of beige tents set up behind a rocky hill, and he disappeared into the largest of the tents. So, this is Silosis. Yeah, I'm not a fan, Marie said to Neil. Yeah, me neither, he said back. Ort emerged from the tent, and just behind him was the general. All Silosians were squat and stocky and covered in rock-like scales. The scaling on Silosian women was much subtler. The general had long black hair but was pulled into a ponytail. She wore gray and black fatigues and had a black bandolier across her chest. The general greeted Neil and Marie with a bright smile. You are Neil, the general said. Neil nodded his head and he smiled politely. Your father has told us many stories of you. It is honor to meet the son of Stephen, said the general. Thanks, he replied. Can you take me to the hospital? I think my grandpa was taken there. We'll leave at once. On the way, we must discuss why you've shown up on my battlefield, the general said. What's your name? Marie asked. You may call me General Rubin, or General Ruby, she said. You got it, Marie said. I'm Marie, Neil's best friend. It's wonderful to see another female warrior, even as young as you, General Ruby said. Marie smiled brightly. General Ruby walked briskly down a white pebble path, 
with Ord just behind her. Neil Marie sludged over the path as quickly as they could. The gravity exhausted them as they made their way around a series of rocky hills before coming upon a dirt lot with several metal-plated vehicles. They were similar to the vehicles on Earth, but they were much smaller in size, and they stood low to the ground. Neil looked at Ort and then at the vehicle. I don't think we're going to fit, Neil said. That is correct. You will hold on to the roof, said Ort. Ort, General Ruby, and Sagan piled into a small six-wheeled vehicle. Neil and Marie climbed onto its wide roof. They locked their hands around a set of brackets and held on tight as the armored vehicle rumbled forward. Neil looked back at the camp and saw the vehicle's tracks glow red in the dirt. Neil pointed out to Marie. Neil slid up on the roof and dipped his head into the cockpit of the vehicle. Why do your tracks glow? Neil asked. Our vehicles are very heavy, and when they move, they melt the sand. We call this valley the Glasslands, General Ruby said. Cool, Neil said, and he slid back down to Marie to tell her about the Glasslands. An unbearable cramp grew in his left hand, just as the armored vehicle pulled up to a series of gray windowless tents. Or and General Ruby piled out of the vehicle while he and Marie slid off the roof. General Ruby led him to a series of tents at the front of the Resistance Field Hospital. This is where he would have been taken, Ort said. General Ruby walked up to the first tent. The soldier saluted her by raising a closed fist to the side of his head. The general saluted in return. Then she spoke something back to the guard. The guard handed her a small black box that expanded in her hand. Neil saw a series of alien writing on the device as the general flipped from screen to screen. Finally, she handed the box back to the guard and rejoined the rest of the group. Your grandfather is in recovery tent at the end of the encampment. He is fine, just some cuts and scrapes. I will lead you to him, General Ruby said. Neil Marie walked behind Ort and the general as they moved down an endless row of tents. He faintly saw a figure standing in front of the last tent on the row. He assumed it was another guard, but then he saw a silver ponytail materialize out of the darkness. Grandpa Al was waiting for them to arrive. Neil trudged his way into his grandfather's waiting arms. He looked up at his grandfather and he could see dried blood in his silver beard and a large laceration across his forehead. The wound was sutured with a black thread. Are you okay? he asked concerned. I'm fine. It looks worse than it is, his grandfather said. How are you? We're good. I'm exhausted, Neil said. Walking here is like walking in mud. What happened to you? Grandpa Al asked. I ran behind a rock, and that's where Ord found me, Neil said, pointing at the stocky figure standing behind him. We found Marie and barely escaped the battlefield. Ord took us to meet the resistance leader. Her name's General Ruby, and she knows Dad. Anyway, he brought us here. I'm so glad you're both all right said his grandfather. What about you? Neil asked. I tried to run, but I wasn't fast enough. There was an explosion behind me and I was thrown forward. I was dazed and when my vision cleared, I was being dragged off by a couple of medics who brought me here, Grandpa Al said. But that's not the worst part. Neil saw his grandfather reach into the pocket of his cargo shorts and pull out his wormhole device. It had dozens of spidery cracks emanating from a hole in the center of the screen. Neil looked blankly down at the device. We're back to only having one wormhole device, kid. We need to guard yours with every ounce of our being, said his grandfather. It's okay. We'll find Dad's path once mine is charged. This place seems pretty safe, Neil said. Marie winced at Neil's words. Dude, why'd you have to say that? She asked him. You're gonna jinx us. Sorry, he said. Orton the general walked up behind Neil and his grandfather. Battle command is this way. Follow me, General Ruby said. The general led him down in another line of tents to a round structure made from large rocks and topped with a gray canvas roof. There were two guards protecting the front door. They saluted the general by placing their rocky fists to their temples. General Ruby saluted them back and the guards stepped aside from the door. 
The group walked into the battle command center, which was lit by a short fire in a black bowl at the center of the large round table. General Ruby climbed up onto a chair and Ort sat beside her. Neil, Marie, and his grandfather sat cross-legged on the ground. Sagan crawled into his lab and fell asleep. Now we're all seated. I would like to personally welcome you to Cellosis, General Ruby said, bowing her head. The earlings bowed their head in return. I must ask, what brings you to our planet? General Ruby asked. We have not seen their father in six revolutions. Silosis revolves slower than Earth. Because of that, Silosian days are equal to two weeks of Earth time. General Ruby says they have not seen their father in three months, Ralph said into the Earthlings' earpieces. Has it really been that long? Neil asked. Time is experienced differently on each planet, his grandfather whispered into his ears. General Ruby stared at Neil, waiting for his reply. Well, we're here because of my father. He's in trouble, and we're trying to rescue him, he said. Do you know where he is? Ord asked. We don't, Marie said. We need to find the planet he's on, Neil said. And my father said to come here and look for you. I owe your father my life. I will help you in any way I can, Ord said. We are in the middle of the bloodiest battle in our war. You must find your path quickly. The state is advancing on our position, and we're struggling to hold the lines, General Ruby said. We'll try to find as fast as possible. I promise, Neil said. Why are you at war? asked his grandfather. Silosis is once a lush planet and it was full of life, but we started running out of energy and our ancestors refused to adapt. They dug deeper and deeper into the ground until one day they dug too deep. They struck a vein of magma and the ground collapsed, leaving a gash across our world. This opening spilled poisonous gas into the atmosphere and it sent our planet to, into an age of ice. We barely survived extinction. The state was established to reverse the impact of the Ice Age. We all belonged to the state. Everyone had a purpose. Then the leaders of the state became increasingly paranoid about its people. Without any proof, they began taking away our rights and they began to imprison us. I was general of the state, but when I discovered that they planned to enslave the entire working population, I defected and began a small resistance. Soon we had an army and we brought the fight to them, General Ruby said, puffing out of her chest. That is why we fight. Or grabbed General Ruby's head lovingly. They shared a brief, silent moment. Then the general turned her head with a thin smile. I would like you to stay as our guest. We don't have much food here, but what we do have is quite good. Once we've eaten, my guards will escort you to your tent, General Ruby said. Where can we find you? Neil asked. I am returning to my own tent. I am already late for a briefing with my colonels, General Ruby said. The general and Or climbed down the chairs and they disappeared through the door of the tent. Soon after, a pair of soldiers brought in several bowls full of a bubbling green liquid. Marie just stared at the bowl. You got this, Neil heard Marie say to herself as she picked up a spoon and submerged it into the bowl. He watched her gingerly bring the spoon to her lips and take a small sip. Her eyes widened in surprise. Good, dude. Like, really good, she said. This is all the convincing it took for him and his grandfather. They both picked up their spoons and hungrily shoved spoonfuls of the alien soup into their mouths. Neil yawned as he slid his finger around the inside of the bowl, collecting as much of the residual green liquid as possible. Marie could barely keep her eyes open. Neil's grandfather stood up, stretched his legs, and went to the guard outside of the tent so he could lead them to their sleeping tent. The guard led the three of them to a short gray tent. Neil's grandfather bowed to the guard, who bowed in return, and walked back down to the row of tents. Neil was the first to enter the tent. He saw that there were no beds or bunks, but instead there were three green sacks on the canvas floor. A single lantern lit the inside of the tent. He moved to the nearest bag and collapsed down into it. Marie followed behind and slumped into her bag. We are, what, like a million light years from Earth? Marie said rhetorically. 
Silosis is located in a small galaxy approximately 180,000 light years away, Ralph chimed in. Fine, Marie said sarcastically. We are 180,000 light years away from Earth, and these folks have beanbags, just like the one in my bedroom. Trippy, Neil said. Grandpa Al lingered outside for a moment. Neil went to see what his grandfather was up to. He exited the tent and saw his grandfather staring up at the alien night sky. He liked the idea and looked up at the sky as well. Soon Marie joined them and the three of them stood quietly outside their tent, staring up into a sky full of stars that exist in a galaxy trillions of miles from Earth. After a moment, they headed back inside the tent and collapsed in their alien beanbags, falling asleep immediately. Neil's eyes flashed open. The air was still and silent. Faintly, in the distance, there was the slightest popping sound. Seconds later, a breeze rippled the tents. Neil strained to hear anything when the sound of a distant explosion rolled over the tent. Your wormhole device is currently at its optimum energy level to initiate a wormhole, Ralph said unexpectedly. Neil rushed over to his sleeping grandfather. He tapped him on the shoulder and his eyes opened. What's up, kid? He asked. I think we need to go. Something's happening outside, said Neil. A piercing alarm came to life just outside their tent. The alarm woke up Marie and Sagan. Grandpa Al jumped up, grabbed the packs and handed them to Neil and Marie. Suddenly, the air was alive with the roaring and crackling sound of fire. Where do we go? Marie asked. Away from that roaring sound, Neil said. The three of them ran out of the tent. The guard was gone and there were dozens of soldiers rushing towards the sound of the explosion. Neil headed left down a random row of tents. Marie and his grandfather followed behind him. Sagan darted in between their feet. They reached a clearing at the end of the tents. This needs to happen now, said his grandfather. I'm going to initiate the wormhole and scan for the horizontal path. If I don't find it in a few seconds, I'll take us to Glacies, Neil said. Marie and Grandpa Al agreed. Neil knew that this was their last chance to save his father's life. Going to Glacies meant that he would have to let his father and Dr. Lowell go. Neil stood tall. Instead of withering under the fear and pressure, he was going to find the right path. Let's roll, Marie said. Neil tapped his device and the blue glow of the screen lit up his face. He swiped the screen again to initiate the wormhole and he tapped a picture of Glacies. A blue laser shot from the wormhole device and soon a bright icy planet emerged from within the singularity. Just then, a towering fireball rocketed through the sky and landed on the tent where the three of them were sleeping just seconds before. Find that path now, Grandpa Al yelled. Neil aimed the laser from the wormhole device and he started scanning for the horizontal path. He swung the wormhole to the left and he briefly saw the icy glacy surface fade into a dull brown world. Calibrate to this path, Neil said, and the singularity locked onto the brown planet. Marie, go! yelled Grandpa Al. Marie ran through the wormhole. Grandpa Al grabbed Neil and pushed him forward. There was another explosion, and this time they could feel the heat of the shockwave. The rush of air pushed Neil ahead of his grandfather. Just as he reached the singularity, an explosion threw him through the wormhole and right into Marie's arms. He knocked her over just as the singularity closed. Grandpa Al and Sagan were left stranded on Silosis. Neither he nor Marie had any idea where in the universe they were. They got up from the dirt, and that's when they realized that the planet was freezing. Neil pulled on his black shirt of soft metal that the white shoe had given him, and Marie put on her hoodie. They stood back to back, scanning the horizon. They could see glassy frost-covered hills and faint gray shapes in the distance. Ward is a commander in the Silosian resistance. All Silosians look like living rocks, and they're short to the ground. And that's because of the intense gravity on the planet. Oort is named after Jan Oort, who is a pioneer in the radio astronomy. The Oort cloud is named after him. 
and the Oort cloud is a cloud of asteroids and comets that lie outside the orbit of Pluto. Oort saves Neil and Marie, and he takes them behind the front lines of the battle, and that's where they meet Oort's wife, General Ruby. General Rubin, also known as General Ruby, used to be a leader in the Silosian state before starting a rebellion against them. General Ruby is named after Vera Rubin. Dr. Rubin is the one who discovered that the universe is expanding and it's also speeding up instead of slowing down. General Ruby gives us a little history on the planet, Silosis. She said that overmining for resources caused a huge collapse along a rift line. The inspiration for this was based on the Martian canyon called Valles Marinaris. Valles Marinaris is the largest canyon in the solar system and was created when Martian tectonic plates separated just before they stopped moving altogether. General Ruby then talked about how the state began to oppress the workers and were about to enslave them when she defected and started the revolution. I love writing the part describing the vehicles that are used on Silosis, but also something cool that defines them. I came up with the idea of the glasslands because when you superheat sand, you get glass. So, because the Silosian vehicles are so heavy, they create friction heat. Then that heat turns the sand into glass. General Ruby brings Neil and Marie to where Grandpa Al is recovering from an injury he sustained during the battle. All three of them are fed and taken to a tent to sleep. I've mentioned this multiple times over the course of the series. The idea of looking into a night sky, but not seeing the same stars or constellations that are in the night sky above Earth. I always thought that would be a fascinating thing to see. Soon after, Neil hears a commotion coming from a distance. He's wise enough to understand that something's not right, and so he wakes up Grandpa Al and Marie, and they escape to a clearing beyond the camp. They make it just as their tent that they were in is bombed. I took a lot of inspiration from The Empire Strikes Back to write this chapter. In Empire, the story ends on a down note. It's in the middle of part of the story, so you need a reason to keep going. So, with that said, I made the decision to have Neil and Marie become separated from Grandpa Al. It leaves the ending on a cliffhanger, and it makes you want to keep reading. Chapter 11 Stephen and Dr. Lowell searched the remnants of a crumbled building. Outside the door was a tarnished silver circle with indecipherable symbols written on it. Their expedition yielded a wire-looking material, a rusted instrument that looked like pliers in a book of pictures. The men left the building as quickly and as cautiously as possible. They made their way outside and headed back towards the shelter. The two men navigated their way up around the grassy, snow-covered hills outside the disintegrating city. The sun's luminance has decreased a total of 39%, 10% in the last 56 minutes, Ralph said. The two men began walking with more urgency to get back to the shelter. They crested another hill and Ralph interrupted the silence. I've connected to another wormhole device, Ralph said. What do you mean? Stephen asked. There's another wormhole device on this planet. The signal is coming from less than a kilometer ahead of your position. The two men grabbed a hold of each other, thankful to be so close to rescue. They took off running up and down a series of hills, brown with dying flowers. Stephen could see a figure in a shimmering black shirt standing next to another figure in a green sweatshirt. This gave him and Dr. Lowell an extra boost of energy as they crested the last hill. Neil tried to see past a mile of low rolling hills when he heard something on the air. It was yelling. Marie heard it too. They turned their heads to a hill 20 feet ahead of them. On the crest was a pair of figures in puffy, cold weather suits. At first, they were frightened by the figures running at them, until Neil heard something completely unexpected. Neil! The closest figure yelled. Soon, the two figures crested the last hill. Stephen ripped off his snow goggles and locked eyes with his son. Dad? Neil asked, not believing what his eyes were seeing. Mr. Webb? Marie asked. 
Marie looked beyond Neil's father, and she saw this other figure push back his hood and remove his goggles. It was Dr. Lowell. Marie let out a high-pitched shriek of excitement. She ran over to Dr. Lowell and threw her arms around him. She let him go, took a step backward, and extended her hand out. Dr. Lowell, my name is Marie Arroway, and I want you to know that you're my hero. Dr. Lowell grabbed Marie's offered hand and shook it. You're here to rescue me. It makes you my hero, Dr. Lowell said, smiling brightly. Stephen and Neil reluctantly let each other go. Stephen looked down at his son, then over to Marie and back to Neil. I thought Grandpa Al was with you, he said. He was with us, Neil said, choking back a sob. There was an explosion just as we were coming through the wormhole, and Grandpa Al got stuck on cellulosis. Neil's eyes welled up with tears. Stephen pulled his son to his chest and wrapped his arm around him. Let's go find him, Stephen said. On cellulosis, all that remained of the resistance camp was shattered, smoking tent poles. The ground was scorched black in every direction. The end of the destruction was a deep crater where clearing used to be. Until I wrote Event Horizon, Chapter 10 has been the longest chapter that I've written for the Race to Space series. Neil and Marie appear in the middle of a battle on a rocky planet called Silosis. Silosis is one of the only worlds not named after a scientist. In fact, most of the worlds in the original trilogy are not named after scientists. The reason is that Neil's dad would either name them, such as Simia and Phoebeosophora, which have Latin derivations of certain characteristics on their planet. Simia, for example, is Latin for gorilla or for primate. Amphibios is Latin for amphibian, and flora is Latin for flower. Or they would be named by the intelligent species that lives on the world, such as Silosis. One of the harder things to do when coming up with an entire universe is you always have to come up with new everything. New creatures, names, languages, dwellings, food, and, in this case, weapons. That is also why the Resistance and the State both use electromagnetic weapons. It's just like in Simia, but the weapons look and act differently. Neil is saved by Ort, but he is separated from Grandpa Alan Marie. As I just said, Chapter 10 was the longest chapter that I've written for the Race to Space series. Alternately, Chapter 11 happens to be the shortest chapter in the series. And this is where Neil is reunited with his father. And that's it for the Race to Space 2, The Wave of Time. Next week, I'll talk more about some of my literary influences, and I'll begin the first few chapters of the Race to Space 3, The End of Time. Thank you all so much for listening. If you like what you're hearing, make sure you follow us on whichever podcast platform you're listening on, and please share every episode. And if you'd like to throw down a couple bucks to support Chucky Pacific Productions, you can go to our Venmo at Chucky Pacific. If you have any comments or feedback, you can email me at DaveTheWriter303 at gmail.com. You can also come check me out on Facebook at DaveTheWriter303, on Instagram at DavidHawk303, and on Twitter at DavidHawk303. Have a good night, be safe, and if you happen to be outside at night, make sure you take a look up at the stars. All right, have a good night, everybody. The Race Through Space Read-Along Podcast is a Chucky Pacific production. For comments or sponsorship inquiries, please go to truckypacificproductions at gmail.com.